Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. It's the word of the Lord. I want to focus on something that Luke writes. In those days. This is how the ESV translates this. Some some translations say, and it came to pass. Some translations actually say, in the fullness of time. Do you remember in Galatians, Paul said that. He said, in the fullness of time, God sent Jesus. Galatians 4. In the fullness of time. In the fullness of time sounds, when you think of that beginning the account of someone's birth reminds me of language we're familiar with. It reminds me of once upon a time. Once upon a time indicates a story is going to be told. Once upon a time there were four little rabbits. Flopsy, Mopsy, Cottontail, and Peter. As soon as you say the words once upon a time, Everybody leans towards the speaker. I, was, I, noticed this, I noticed this regularly when I'm preaching, but I particularly noticed it a couple weeks ago when I was telling the story of my friend Kurt and the get off me. Everybody is leaning. Everybody's listening. Why? Because we love stories. We're wired for stories. If we're not careful, we don't see the difference between once upon a time and in the fullness of time. And there is a difference. Once upon a time, though its great story indicates a fairy tale, a myth. Many want to relegate the scriptures to a fairy tale, to a myth. Christmas becomes fairy tale like for us for many of us. We like that aspect of of Christmas being a once upon a time thing. I'm going to be honest, I love Christmas for a lot of nostalgic reasons. I love it for Jesus, but I love it for the fairy tale-ish myth of it. Don't you? I love Christmas. Christmas music started on Thanksgiving and it's going to play until probably like the day after Christmas at our house. I love the, the fairy taleish nature of Christmas. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But if Christmas is just a fairy tale, if it's just put on the shelves as one among many fairy tales, then the story of Jesus really doesn't mean a whole lot. And it certainly won't get much done for you. Fairy tales don't do much for you when you're on your deathbed. Fairy tales don't do much for you when you hear it's cancer. 
Fairy tales don't do much for you when you're walking through a significant trial in life. If, if Christmas is just a fairy tale, then most of the people in this room are fools, Paul would say. We're banking our life on something that's a myth. What's the difference between once upon a time and in the fullness of time? Jewish literature had a commitment to understanding the redemptive plan of God taking place in real history, in real time. There's a difference between the way the Greeks understood history and the way the Jews understood history. Greeks understood history as being circular. Just repeats itself. The Jews understood history as being linear. The Jews understood history as a recording of the actions of God as true historical events. The Greeks didn't understand history that way. They were, you know your Greek mythology. It was scandalous for a Greek to think that God became, would become physically involved with humans at all. This is why Paul speaks about to the Greek, it's foolishness. The idea of, of Jesus being, even his resurrection, the idea of a, a dead person coming back to life was something that, that the Greeks could accept. But the idea of God becoming man was something that was scandalous to them. God would never, a God would never mix with humanity. God would never contaminate himself by taking on a physical and human body. Such was the, uh, a Greek understanding of history. As I've already mentioned, Jewish history is linear. It's not circular. This is why our Bible begins with, in the beginning. In the beginning. If the Bible is God's story of redemption, of his plan to save, Redemption isn't even dealt with until it's established that there is a creation in the beginning. A creation that ultimately needs to be redeemed. To the Jew, history begins and moves to a point of consummation. This is important if we would understand in the fullness of time. In those days. And it came to pass. Luke is recording for us that in those days, in the fullness of time, something happened. And that something happened in time and in space. Luke has recorded this. He has taken time to research this. He has interviewed, he tells us in the beginning, that he's interviewed eyewitnesses. And what he is, as he begins to tell us of the story of Christ's birth, he wants 
us all to know that it happened in the fullness of time. It happened in space. It happened in time. It happened in history. It's real. It's not just a fairy tale. It's in the fullness of time. It's not once upon a time. Do you see this? He tells us that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. There really was a Caesar Augustus who ruled in Rome. There really was a Rome. There really was a man named Quirinius who was governor of Syria, which was a real place. There really was a Jesus Christ of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem. The setting of the birthplace of Jesus is set in the context of real history, which makes him a real Savior. He's not just a myth. He's not just a fairy tale. He is real. So what Luke has done is he demythologizes the Bible. The birth of Jesus is set directly in the context of history. The fullness of time. One more point about this, and we'll talk about why it matters. The fullness of time. Two Greek words used for time. One is chronos, C-H-R-O-N-O-S. We are familiar with that word. When people talk about recording time and writing a recording of activities and events over time, we call that a chronicle. First and second chronicles. Or a lot of us are measuring time right now with a watch. The fancy name for a watch comes from the Greek word chronos. It's a chronometer. It meters time. It measures time. So the Greeks understood chronos as a, as a word for time. The normal movement and passing of time. But they had another word for time. The word was kairos. And kairos was not just this normal tick, 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 tick of time. It was a special moment in time which had extraordinary significance. It was a point within chronos. And Our Bible, we see this happening over and over again. There are certain events and time that the Bible repeats over and over and over again because they are kairos moments of time. They are kairotic. We think this way. It's the difference between historical and historic. I heard a New Testament scholar speaking on these things. Everything that's ever happened in your life is historical. It happened. 
in time. But not everything is historic. When you, you reserve special moments as those moments that are the ones that you tell people when you gather the family together, there's these historic moments in your life, which is different than historical. You'll bore people if every time they say, give us a historic moment, and you give them your detailed, chronological, historical moments. You'll bore them to death. They don't want to hear that. They want to hear historic moments. Moments of significant, extraordinary significance. Moments of crucial meaning. The Bible does this. The exodus. The the exile. The Babylonian exile. The birth of Jesus. The death of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. These are all chirotic moments. They are moments filled with extremely important, extraordinary significance. They are a point in time. They are a moment in history filled with significance. Now, why does this matter? Why does it matter that Jesus was real? That, he, that, it's, that it's not just once upon a time, that it's in the fullness of time that God sent Jesus. Why does that matter to us? It matters, guys. It matters. Because we don't need a fictitious Savior. We need a real Savior. A, a mythological Jesus cannot save us, cannot help us. We need a real Savior because we need real help, because we have real needs, because we have real weakness, because we have real confusion, because we have real limitations. We need help. Does anybody feel that this morning? I was listening to John Piper on this idea that we need help this past week. His Solid Joys devotionals are like two and a half minutes long. They're outstanding. You should listen to them. And he was talking about this idea of we, we need help. And it made me think of the fact, uh, it made me think about Advent and the coming of Jesus as a real Savior. That's, that's where we get our help from. We get our help from a real Savior. We need help because we're weak, because we're confused. Because we have limitations. Because problems come to us. Sometimes problems that we've contributed to. Sometimes problems that we didn't contribute to. These things fall upon us and we need help in dealing with them. Anybody aware of your need for help this morning? We really need help. We need real help, but we also have sins. And our sins remind us that deep, deep down in the deepest places of your soul, you know you don't deserve help. We need it, but we don't deserve it. So what does God do? In the fullness of time, He sends someone to help you. He sends Jesus, a Savior, Real help that we need, that we don't deserve. 
We have these needs. We know we don't deserve help, so we feel trapped. We need help with our lives. We need help to live. We need help to handle death. We need help to deal with eternity. So I said fairy tales, they're not going to help us with that. See, we spend so much time, this is my concern for us. I was just talking with someone about this this week. My concern for us and, and where we live and all the blessings that we have, it, it, it keeps us from ever experiencing any kind of discomfort at all. We, we, we drown out real problems with technology or, or, or just the, all the blessings that we have. We actually can live without feeling pain because we run to other things to dull it. But, but a fairy tale Jesus can't help me when I'm at death's door. A fairy tale Jesus can't help me when, I'm, when I'm, someone I love is at death's door. A fairy tale Jesus can't help me with my real problems. I need a real Savior. I need real help. And it's not just with eternity and handling death and life. I need help with my relationships with my family. I need help with my spouse. I need help with my kids. We need help with loneliness. We need help with our jobs. We need help with our finances. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? We need help. We need help. But we don't deserve it. And so what do we do? We either try harder, work harder, become Superman to try to fix, overcome our challenges and our problems, or we try to drown them out with whatever we can think of. Technology, Christmas gifts, books, relationships, alcohol, drugs. We, 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 we try to drown out, escape from the fact that we need help. Or we just fall into despair. We just fall into a sense of, of hopelessness. You've seen people do this. Maybe you've done it. You feel hopeless. But Jesus came to give you and me the real help that we really need. Aren't you glad? In the fullness of time, Christ came. And when He did, He made God's holy throne a throne of grace where we could find real help in our real time of need. You're not trapped. You don't have to be superwoman. You don't have to drown out your sorrows whatever, and the next thing you can find to try to escape. You don't have to give in to despair. You can have real help right here, right now. It's found in Jesus. And there's a whole room of people that have run to him for help. And you can have that help too. It's available to you because of Christmas. It's available to you because of what the, 
God's redemptive plan to send Jesus to be a real Savior. And He did that in the fullness of time. Amen? What I want to do now is just look, and I want to ask the guys to put the lyrics up to O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We'll, do, we'll look at verse 1, yeah, and then we'll look at verse 3. This song is probably the 12th century, they think, but they can't identify the author. Doesn't that stink? Like, if I wrote that song in the 12th century and people have been singing it, I, like, what about me? Like, I want some credit for that. Don't you want credit for the things you do? That's like, like, that's like at, the, at, the, at the office, you work really hard on something and a whole other group of clowns get the credit for it. Maybe not clowns. 12th century, originally in Latin. It's actually a mournful melody with, juxtaposed with a call to what? What are we supposed to do in that song? Rejoice. It's an interesting song. But it's reflecting some incredible truth. The song does. It's devotional. It reflects and reaffirms our heart's deep desire for Jesus' return, especially in troubling times. This song would have helped people who were struggling through difficult times. Why ask twice, O come, O come, Emmanuel? Why not just O come, Emmanuel? Why beg him twice? We need Jesus to come. We need him to come in the fullness of time when he came the first Christmas. And we need him to come in the fullness of time when he returns once again to collect his people and to take them home to be with him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. You looking for that? Some of us more than others, it seems. Israel cried out in the first century for God's first appearance. Now, 2,000 years later, we cry out, O come, O come, for His second appearance. And it's coming. It's going to be as real as His first coming. Because the Scripture tells us that it's going to happen in the fullness of time. The words say, O come, O come, Emmanuel. What does that word Emmanuel mean? You're going to hear a lot of definitions of Emmanuel at Christmas. It means God with us. The name that sums up what Christmas means for Christians. Emmanuel. God came to be with us. He didn't come just to be, become a man to feel what it's like to be in our shoes which is what some people would say Jesus has done. He needed to feel what it was like to, to live in our shoes. So He came. It's not just that we needed a friend in God. And becoming a man made Jesus more accessible to us. The Scripture tells us that God made Him a servant. 
we'll think about that this Christmas season, but it, it's worth thinking about this morning. Infinite God, and, and Tom was referencing that in that Philippians 2 passage, infinite God enclosed himself in Mary's womb for nine months. Doesn't that like make you just, <laughs> how do you do that? Wrapped in rags and laid in a feeding trough for a bed. Picture baby Jesus on Mary's lap like I see many babies on your laps. That was Jesus on Mary's lap, needing to learn to read and write. Doesn't that blow your mind? The Greek historians couldn't get the, they never could get their mind around that. That would never happen. God would never contaminate himself. God contaminated himself so that you could be set free from all that contaminates you. Isn't that amazing? In the fullness of time, he became vulnerable. He became our Emmanuel. It says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. The Jews weren't searching for just a special cataclysmic event. They knew when Messiah came, He would ransom them. They longed for the ransom. God had seen their mourning. He'd seen them in lonely exile under Babylonian Rome, under Rome, Roman rule. Their warrior would soon be on the way. In the fullness of time, He came to ransom you from sin and from death. Praise Him. You know, one of the things that I want to, to do is to help us all to apply content like this very practically. I think one of the things that Isaac did really well in his sermon a couple weeks ago is he gave us that Arlo. I've heard some of you talking about it. It's just real practical. Sermons should proclaim the gospel, but should push us to be practical as well. So how can we practically apply what's happening here? Um, if you didn't read it yet, I want you to read it. You've been getting emails once a week. You got one from JRUS this week. And in it, there's some helpful resources. He actually wrote an Advent devotional that families can use or you could use that follows the preaching series. He took time to write it. Use it. He also linked in it a number of resources for families. I think Bethany, found, Bethany Nesbitt found some devotionals that families could use in the season of Advent. There you go. You're wondering, how can I make this practical? How can I talk to my family about the real meaning of Christmas? How can I talk to them about the real Jesus? Use those devotionals. There's links to devotionals for men in Advent. Devotionals for women and Advent. There's links provided there and even resources downstairs that you can use as a family or just use in your devotions to do what? Get your souls happy in Jesus. This is what we need. These are very practical ways to do that. I hope that you'll use them this year.
what does it say? In ransom, and then it says rejoiced. Rejoice. It's a call to rejoice. Oppressed and languishing in a spiritual state of exile, the first century Jews could still carry on with a sense of expectation and hope that their Savior was going to come. Like a prisoner who weeps because he's discovered he'll soon be pardoned, but hasn't yet been pardoned, rejoices. They rejoice through tears of, of exile. Tears still of a remaining sentence because they know that God is going to keep His Word. In the fullness of time, all God's promises to you are going to come to pass. All God's promises to us are going to come to pass. Come cheer. Second verse. Or third verse, sorry. Speaks about Come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. The coming day of the Lord will be judgment. You say, how does that cheer? Many people would deny that God is going to come and judge. They don't like that idea. They want to talk about God as being merciful and loving, which He is. But He is a holy judge a just God and deep down you want that you want a God that's just because God is one day going to come and make all wrongs right aren't you glad of that aren't you glad that God is actually going to make things right think of all the injustices that have taken place just this week on the earth God's going to do something about that he's going to make all wrongs right He's going to overturn the tables of phony human justice and He's going to come and declare His judgment against a sinful humanity. And all those who are in Christ, that judgment will pass over you because Jesus took the judgment that we deserved so that we might escape it. Not only will we be spared the wrath of God if we're in Christ, we'll be vindicated. We'll, we'll go forward with Christ shouting. And we'll spend all eternity with Him. In the fullness of time, our spirits will be eternally rescued. Isn't this good truth? And death dark shadows put to flight. Jesus didn't just defeat sin and evil. He conquered the greatest enemy to God's creation. The greatest enemy to God's creation is death. Jesus conquered it. We're waiting for Him. We're waiting for the final resurrection. We're waiting for Him to come. That moment when the dark shadow of death will be put to flight forever. No more pain. No more crying. No more sorrow. No more shame. No more death. Church, are you waiting for that day? Not only will God end, end these things, but He'll end future death. And, and not only will He end the idea of future death, but He's going to make it so that all past death is going to be reversed. 
God's going to raise up the remains of our earthly bodies. He's going to transform them into the likeness of Christ. And we are going to live in his new world for the rest of eternity. Who gets to do that? Everyone who finds, who puts their faith in the real Jesus Christ. Anyone turns to him and says, I need you. I need what you came to do. I'm sinful. I can't help myself. I need the help that you provided. Would you please forgive me? Would you rescue me? Those who take Jesus as a Savior will escape death forever and will live in his new world with him for the rest of eternity. And when's that going to happen? It's going to happen in the fullness of time. Let me ask the band to return. The song calls us to rejoice. We can rejoice, church. We can rejoice right now, even 2,000 years later, after Jesus' first coming. We can rejoice even in the moments of our own pain and suffering that we experience in this broken world. Why? Because we have a real Savior. He's not a, he's not a fictional Savior. He's not a once-upon-a-time Savior. He's an in-the-fullness-of-time Savior. So what do we do? We rejoice. We rejoice. Jesus is going to come again to get us. People of God, we should rejoice. We should be the happiest people in all of the earth. The long night of our exile, as the song says, will soon be over. The morning star has risen. The dawn will soon break. And night will be gone forever. This Christmas season, with one voice, with our hearts tuned, may we join with Christians all over the world and sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. The first and primary task, like Mueller said, of every single day of our lives is to get our souls happy in Jesus. We can do that by singing and reminding ourselves of the great truths of old. Let's do that together.